Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. With episode 394 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and it is Thursday so you know exactly what that means. We are here to talk about everything that went down over the last week in AEW and NXT. As it would turn out, this is the ninth Getting Over episode that we have produced for you over the last three weeks and that is because there has been a combination of major breaking news to start 2023 along with our planned 2022 year in review episode and the 2022 Getting Over Awards, a.k.a. The Meaties. All of those are in our podcast feed. So if you have missed any of those episodes, hell, if you missed the WWE episode this week, given we did a special episode for you on Monday, make sure you hit the feed, check the archive, and listen to all of those back episodes. As we kick off this latest show, allow me to do what I always do and remind you that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify, drop those five-star ratings on Apple, take a few moments out of your life, leave a five-star written review as well. And if you do, we will read it live right here on the podcast. Speaking of which, we got a brand new five-star review that came in on Monday from jdumphy 68 Headline is getting over. I mean, a little bit more creative you could have been, but I appreciate it. Dumphy 68 five stars, of course, remains the best wrestling pod, hands down. The instant analysis pods are my favorite. If anything happens in wrestling, Adam and Chris are there for an immediate breakdown to give you the details that most pods don't. Keep up the good work, gentlemen. Thank you, and keep up the uh, five-star reviews, Dumphy 68 I'm sure there's other shows uh, that would appreciate them as well. Please also do not forget to follow us on Twitter at getting overcast for episode drops, news, analysis of news, of which there has been plenty these days, and we're uh, toiling the late night hours getting it out to you. And of course, highlights from shows as well. Follow us on Twitter at getting overcast. Now, if I happen to sound a little down today, just, you know, being candid with you guys, I got my uh, second COVID booster earlier this week. So I'm kind of drained, just exhausted. The arm hurts way less symptomatic uh, than the prior times in terms of like lethargy, the arm pain, all that type of stuff. It's actually by far the best of the four shots that I've gotten to this point, but it has completely zapped my energy, even though, oh yeah, I feel it coursing through my veins. Yeah. Well, technically they put it in the muscle and I don't have a great Randy Savage impression. So I'll probably never do that. Again, point is if I sound low energy, you guys know I'm usually not, uh, but it is a relatively rough day. And we have a lot to get to across AEW and NXT on this show. A quick overview of both uh, products, what I thought this week. AEW, candidly, I thought they knocked it out of the park. Rampage, solid. Battle of the Belts, solid. Dynamite, fantastic. NXT, pretty much the exact opposite. It was the worst NXT television special that I can remember them putting on. I mean, at least the worst in the last year, year and a half, and probably well beyond that. It just didn't work. Uh, The booking was somewhat ridiculous for the most part. And we're going to break all that down for you later in today's show. A reminder of how things work on this particular episode. We do have timestamps 
in the episode description, as we do for every episode of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. So you can hit the uh, episode description, find the timestamp for the segment that you want to listen to. But as always, I do hope that you listen to the entire show. Clearly a lot happened in the world of AEW this week. So that is where we are going to kick it off because they didn't just have that very special, heavily promoted Dynamite from Los Angeles. They had a live rampage from Portland, followed by a live Battle of the Belts show from Portland that, of course, was on Friday night. So a lot to break down. We're going to get to that right now. NXT will be the second half of today's show, probably more like the final third or final quarter, given how much there is to talk about in the world of AEW. So as I noted, the Portland crowd for Rampage and Battle of the Belts on Friday, live shows, as I mentioned, it was better than most Dynamite crowds that we get. Even the poor matches, the crowd was super engaged and energized and excited to watch. It was to the point that Tony Khan, like he may want to seriously consider doing Rampage live every other week and maybe even filming two shows per taping or something. I know that makes creative difficult when you tape like a week ahead, but if you just do matches and you keep storylines that are specifically on Rampage, they could make it work. The live shows make all the difference. Crowds like the one in Portland make all the difference. Also, what makes a difference? Quality cards, which is what we got on Rampage and Battle of the Belts with star baby faces performing. So that is why I thought they were so successful. For Dynamite, AEW, they fixed their uh, ring apron and barricade graphics that I criticized last week. If you remember, I pointed out how they weren't aligned with the new style and color scheme. It may sound minor, but it kind of looked like Mickey Mouse that debut this huge new graphics package and you know stage and all this type of stuff, and then just have the old yellow, you know, white and uh, black barricades, the logo in some places, still using the logo in certain graphics. Like you had all this time to plan for this and they really did mess it up last week. I thought that was strange. Also, I should note um, the barricades are no longer barricades. They're actually like thin safety rails. There were two times during the show that wrestlers nearly got injured bumping into them because they didn't have any give. They didn't move when they were hit. And AEW does so many of those moves outside the ring that like come right up to the crowd. They should be really careful about that. NXT had some issues with their barriers. Theirs was more due to space. The ringside area was very uh, shallow, I guess is the best way to put it. These, they just didn't move. They they seemed almost like they were concrete barriers. I know they weren't, but it, it looked bad. And, and there was one point where commentary even thought Hangman Adam Page bumped his head on one of them. He didn't, but the way he landed and got flung backwards into it. The guy easily could have had whiplash. He didn't, thank God, everything was good. I don't know, they may need to rethink those barriers. That's all I'm trying to say. They're not padded either, which is extremely strange. As I said, I have no idea why they fumbled it so bad last week, but it made all the difference in the world. This week, the presentation was on point for Dynamite. Now, as far as Wednesday's show, look, it was exceptional, all right, from start to finish. There were only two segments that were not what I would consider some level of great. One was mediocre, the other was kind of shit. But to nail like 85% of a two-hour show is extremely tough. Obviously, we're less than two weeks into the year, but right now, this holds the mantle as best TV show of 2023, and there's a really good chance it's never eclipsed. That's how good this show was. Now, the three main matches, they all showed off that AEW has an incredible in-ring product, which we already knew, but being able to put three matches of that caliber on a two-hour television show. And for the most part, the commercials didn't even really interfere in them. That's very difficult to do. AEW succeeded. 
So let's kick things off. We're going to talk Dynamite, Rampage, Battle of the Belts. We're going to throw them all together here. We're going to start off with the main event of Dynamite for the Trios Championship. Death Triangle, three. The Elite, three. The seventh match, best of seven series, and Escalera de la Muerta. I believe that's what it's called. There was an awesome high-impact Canadian Destroyer early in the match. Kenny Omega then completely missed a Tope Hero, flinging his body into a table at ringside seconds before Matt Jackson purposely splashed Pack into another one at ringside. Ray Phoenix took Nick Jackson off the ropes with the top rope Huracarana, flinging him into a ladder that was hanging off the bottom rope in the ring. Pack countered one-winged angel with a poison Rana. Matt ate a German suplex from Pack. Omega took Fear Factor. Phoenix then hit a corkscrew plancha onto Nick outside. Nick hit a 450 splash outside, driving Pentagon through a table. Alex Abrahantes pushed Nick off a ladder. Brandon Cutler got him with the cold spray. Then Omega hit him with a V-trigger. Pack hit Omega's hand with the bell hammer, adding a falcon arrow at ringside. A ladder was placed between the top rope and the standing ladder with Matt taking Fear Factor from Penta into it. Somehow the ladder didn't break, which was good because they were clearly using it in the next spot. It must've been reinforced or something like that. Omega then stood with the ladder or stood on top of the ladder, I should say. He took Phoenix off the top of the standing ladder with a one-winged angel to the canvas. Pack tried Black Arrow. Omega got his knees up. Then he immediately climbed the ladder. He went really slow. I did it with one hand and used one of the titles to pull himself all the way up to the top. He unstrapped it as the Elite won this trio's championship 4-3 in the best of seven series. So look, obviously this was a tremendous match. The appropriate main events for the show as well. I assumed the hammer would play a larger role because it's really been the only storytelling element of the entire feud. So for them to just kind of go completely away from it, I know it was used briefly in the match, I just mentioned that, but to not play out the Phoenix not wanting to use it, Pentagon willing to use it, Pac being the one, you know, pushing it on him, to not play that out in the seventh match when it was such a huge part of like the first four matches of the series, maybe even the first five, I thought that was really disappointing. But that's a minor gripe. Let me get to one more and then we'll praise. I wish the finish for a trio's title match included all three men on the ladder grabbing the titles. I get that the Young Bucks were holding the others back, but it would have been nice to see them all celebrating together, pulling the titles down simultaneously as the culmination of the storyline and a great closing moment to the show. Regardless, this wound up as an exemplary seven match series, even if there were some points that I thought were higher than the others. But this was among the high points. It was one of the two or three best matches in the series. This obviously banged. It was a total sprint. And while that's really tough to do in a ladder match with six guys fighting as two teams rather than all against each other, it was actually executed exceedingly well. My issue with the match is the same as usual. A total lack of selling. It was an expert level spot fest, but it was still a spot fest. So grading it for me is extremely tough. I'll say... 4.75 stars and an A+, because it was just missing so many elements that I need to give a match five stars. Now, that may require me going back and watching their first match again, regrading that. No one really cares for me to do that right now. But that's where I land here, 4.75. It doesn't really matter what I grade it. It's a great match. It's an A-plus match. You need to see it if you haven't. And really, that's all we can say. The Elite winning the titles obviously made sense. As soon as they came back and started the feud... Um, with Death Triangle, you knew they would eventually win. Did it take a long time to get there? Yes. If I had my druthers, would I have done a seven match series if I was Tony Khan? No, I wouldn't have. 
I'd either have done five or three. And I think it would have had the same really solid effect. You space it out every two or three weeks instead of doing them every single week for a long period of time. You still get the same outcome. You still have this match on this particular show. The whole, you know, trying to relate the seven match series to the NBA and the last time a game seven was played in a Kia form, who gives a shit? No one really cared. Um, it was just good wrestling. And AEW deserves a lot of credit though for putting on, really, not really AEW, the wrestlers involved, these six wrestlers, six of the most athletic, most exciting wrestlers in the world, uh, deserve a lot of credit for putting on an incredible match. On Rampage, John Moxley and Brian Danielson fought top flight. This was a really hot match. Darius Martin did a cool tornado DDT on Danielson, pushing himself off Mox's chest. Mox and Darius had a great sequence of counters. Brian hit Darius with a psycho knee for a broken fall, but came back with a submission for the win. Super entertaining, bell to bell. Somewhere around three, seven, five, four stars, B plus, A minus. Really good match. On Rampage, Hangman Page promised to hand Mox's ass to him on Dynamite. He promised an ass kicking so bad, Mox would never forget it. And then he announced he was cleared. Strong promo. As I've said before, when it comes to Hangman talking, I just struggled to believe that he means what he says. Maybe that's just my interpretation of his, you know, speaking patterns and, and the way he talks. Uh, but I just find him very difficult to believe. That's just how it is for me. So on Dynamite, we got the match Mox versus Hangman. This opened the show. Mox gnawed at Hangman's back two minutes into the match. It didn't bleed, which was just nice. I don't want to see someone's back bleeding two minutes into a match. Uh, Page had an answer for everything Mox threw at him, and it was all strong style, going both ways. Hangman hit a huge moonsault outside. Mox countered Buckshot Lariat into Death Rider for a false finish. Mox came back with a pile driver. He soon ate Deadeye, which he strangely just no-sold. He just stood right up, and then he gave Page the stomp onto the head. Mox headbutted Hangman three times to play into the concussion angle, trying to get him concussed again. And I think Mox got busted open hard way, actually, for once, when Hangman returned to headbutt shortly thereafter. After an open-handed slap fight, I guess, strike fight, uh, Page rather easily landed the buckshot lariat and got the win in 15 minutes. After the bell, Mox immediately sold concussion symptoms. He stretched his fingers into a frozen state. Anyone who uh, watches the NFL, you may have seen that happen with Tua Tungavailoa this season on the Dolphins, also my favorite team. Um, So he did that. He played into that. Then the trainer went to check on him. He pulled the trainer down. Uh, Page walked away looking dismayed, acting like, oh, I recognize what's happening here. And then after commercial, Excalibur speculated a concussion for Mox without actually saying the word concussion. So look, it was an excellent match and the perfect show opener. It whipped the crowd into a frenzy. These are two of the best wrestlers in AEW. They went at each other. Really great, strong style moves. And, but also beyond that, tremendous counters, reversals. It was just extremely good. It was surprising to see it only at 15 minutes. It was also surprising for the main event to be 15, 17 minutes. But given Dynamite was loaded, the time made sense. Now, Hangman beating Mox, that's no small deal. And I liked that they played into Page's head injury during the match because it was a legitimate issue that he came back from. So to do the stomp, the headbutts, all that, it makes sense. However, I took major issue with the Mox storyline after the match. I presume the idea is that AEW is writing him off so he can finally go on that vacation. But a fake concussion angle is just, I mean, it's disgusting. I gotta tell you, like, I I don't like, I didn't like when WWE would do it with Randy Orton doing the head kicks, but they never really said it's a concussion or even more importantly, They didn't do it directly on the back end of someone else suffering a major concussion that kept them out of work. So it'd be like 
one thing if Randy Orton had a real concussion and then came in and was like, I'm now going to concuss every single person I fight, which is disgusting to kind of book an angle like that. WWE did not do that. Orton was just a sadistic son of a bitch and kicked people's heads off. And we at home know that it's supposed to be a concussion, but they're not actually saying it. Here, they're doing it with a guy who legitimately had a concussion, not just a concussion in general, but live in the ring on television where it was so bad they had to cut the camera off of, off of him and stretcher him out of the ring. So I thought it was a really sour note on a sweet opener is probably the best way to put it. And what kind of compounded it is what followed. So immediately after that match, to everyone's surprise, Adam Cole made his return to AEW after being shelved for more than six months with a concussion that he suffered at Forbidden Door. The crowd erupted for him. He said there was good news and bad news. He called AEW the best pro wrestling company on the planet with the emphasis on those two words. Cole talked about his extended, extremely rough concussion symptoms. He said what kept him going was the fan support. The bad news was him returning and being a threat to the rest of the locker room. He said a new Adam Cole had been born and he promised to one day be atop the mountain in AEW. So look, this opened the leader in the clubhouse right now for promo of the year. Cole was pitch freaking perfect. You knew the swerve was coming with the good news, bad news thing, but everyone in the arena, at least, seemed to buy it hook, line, and sinker. This was Cole at his best on the mic. You know, when he got concussed, he at that point had been massively overused and overpushed, way too quick and way too long in the title picture. This feels like a total reset beyond him coming back after six months. It's a babyface turn on top of all of that. I would like to see him work his way up the food chain. I think he'd be a great TNT champion, the perfect person to eventually take the strap off Darby Allen. That's maybe what I would book. More than anything, it's just great to see him back where he belongs, which is in the middle of the ring and also with a mic in his hand. But think about what I just said about the Mox angle. He was in a match with a guy who suffered a concussion in the middle of the ring. They did a fake concussion angle to end that match. And then it was followed by a guy who was legitimately out of action six months with a serious concussion and post-concussion symptoms. That is exactly why you do not use a head injury as an angle, especially when pick a freaking body part, collarbone, elbow, wrist, knee, foot, whatever you want, ligament. I mean, you, you can pick anything that to use. I get, I understand they're trying to do a parallel storytelling that Mox concussed, Hangman, so Hangman concussed Mox, and they'll have a match maybe at the next pay-per-view with some type of stipulation. Maybe it's the first person to get knocked out. I mean, that's really the only way it could be worse is if they did a knockout stipulation for the pay-per-view. But, you know, I again, it was just some sour notes on an opening to the show, the first two major segments, that shouldn't have. It was unnecessary to have any of that. Nevertheless, match was good. Cole on the mic was great. On Dynamite, MJF entered the ring for a promo after Kanosuke Takeshko was there for his match with Brian Danielson. Uh, MJF, he, I mean, he threw around some casual racism. That's what he did. Uh, he called him take a shitta, the latter of which him saying it that way, take a shitta, was particularly funny to me because, you know, it's very difficult to spell last names that are not common. And I see this with college football. I talked about Tua Tungavailoa. DJ Ugangle, um, and I may have even botched the pronunciation of his name, 
But Konosuke Takeshka is another very difficult name to spell. And the way I remember to spell it is take shit ah. That's the way you spell his last name. So I actually thought it was kind of funny that MJF brought that up in a promo. But prior to that, the casual racism stuff. I mean, that was Attitude Era. I thought he was way better than that. It was pretty disappointing to hear. Uh, Konosuke then told MJF to kiss his ass, first in Japanese and in English. They got into a shoving match. MJF then said he can last in an Ironman match because he can last long in bed. Again, very Attitude Era type of promo. He called out Ken Jong as being an irrelevant celebrity because his TV show got canceled. He was in the audience. Freddie Prinze Jr. was also in the crowd and he was next on the firing squad with MJF's catchphrase, eventually being cut off by Brian Danielson, who ran into the ring and forced MJF to hightail it up the ramp like he was a cartoon. So the way this started with Takeshka was just kind of cringe, but watching MJF, it was cool to see him use that as an entree into the main part of his promo, which was ripping the celebrities. The crowd absolutely loved that. Both Jong and Prinz were good sports. I'm sure they knew it was coming. Super entertaining. The latter part of it, as always from NJF, he started some animosity with Takeshka. That could pay off down the line in a year or two. They're both young. Presumably they're going to be there for a very long time. So let's get to that actual match. Danielson against Takeshka. Brian got caught with a blue thunderbomb early, then a massive release suplex avalanche style inside and a brain buster outside later. Brian got knees up as Kanosuke tried a springboard senton bomb. Uh, getting him in the label lock, Brian did, and then a butterfly lock, but Takeshka reached the ropes. Takeshka caught Danielson with the clutch tombstone and another suplex, looking absolutely incredible in that sequence. Takeshka missed a jumping knee and ate Brian's psycho knee for a false finish, but Danielson quickly put him in a really unique chokehold for the knockout victory. Brian then raised Takeshka's arm and shook his hand after the bell. This was an incredible match. It was made even better by the crowd, which was on absolute fire for this, even more than Hangman and Mox. All Takeshka does is lose in AEW, but given he's a rookie and Brian is among the greatest in the world right now, it was perfectly fine in this case. Also, really all of Takeshka's losses have come to like main eventers or really high upper mid-carders. Yes, it was another knockout finish, but this is the exact situation where you do use it when it is appropriate to book that way because you want Takeshka to stay strong. However, that said, it's also what the eighth knockout finish or something that AEW's given us in the last two or three weeks. Like it's bordering on ridiculous at this point. I went 4.5 stars, sorry, 4.5 stars and an A for this match. Uh, Meanwhile, Takeshka, kid's already incredible. He's only 27. The crowd loves him, as do I for what it's worth. He should get strapped up before 2023 is out and giving him the All-Atlantic title would probably be the perfect fit. So you have Orange, drop it to a heel, and then you have Takeshka win as a babyface. On Rampage, Britt Baker and Jamie Hayter fought the Renegades. The heels attacked at the bell. Hayter hit a basement lariat. Baker added the stomp. They got the win. The whole thing was a waste of time. On Dynamite, we had Soraya and Tony Storm against Baker and Hayter. Baker hit Storm with a neckbreaker outside. Soraya threw Hayter into the steel steps. Hikaru Shida came down after a couple minutes with a kendo stick. Storm hit a tornado DDT on Baker. She came back with a really rough avalanche air raid crash, and she normally hits that move really well, so that was surprising. Uh, Storm hit Hater with a German suplex on the back of her neck, and then Storm zero for a broken fall. Baker hit Soraya with a butterfly sit-down slam. Rebel got on the apron, so Sheeta threw a kendo stick in the ring, but she threw it right near the heels. Baker slammed Storm in the back, and Jamie hit Hater raid on her for the one, two, three. Sheeta expressed shock on her face after the bell, 
with us perhaps being meant to believe that she meant to throw it to the faces, but she just screwed up when she slid it in the ring. Well-wrestled match with four of probably the eight best women on the entire roster. It got ample time in the normal women's spot with the right team winning and haters the champion. So she needs to be winning matches like these, especially given Storm just lost the title. Also the storyline with Sheeta, I do find it interesting. Now, all that said, Sasha Banks, Mercedes Monet, whatever you prefer, she did not appear. The booking with Sheeta though, it actually kind of leaves that door open because look, no one said Sasha was going to debut at all, let alone in Los Angeles. It was an assumption based on the location of the show and her becoming a free agent. Let's be clear on this. There were no legitimate rumors or reports of Banks heading to AEW at all, let alone on this show. That said, AEW did the mystery partner gimmick over a month ago, only to reveal that partner as Storm a week or two ago, which isn't really a mystery. Tony had chances to deny the appearance or at least level set expectations. He chose not to do so. And really the only thing that I truly had a major problem with was Baker going into a taped interview saying, I'm the boss with a wink, knowing exactly what that would do. So I'm not sure where your expectation level sat entering the show, but I was only 50-50 at best thinking she would appear. And I believe I've mentioned that to you guys over the last couple of weeks. So because of that, I wasn't particularly angry or annoyed that she wasn't there. And I think you guys all know, I'm happy to get on the case of Tony Khan and AEW and criticize them and lambast them and all that great stuff, go on a rant, whatever the case. I don't really feel like Tony personally misled the audience. But what he failed to do was put out a smoldering fire that he knew existed. And he decided, hey, you know what? If people are talking about it on their own, even though we gave him a little juice at the beginning with the two tickets or find a partner and fight us booking, I'm just going to roll with it. People will watch and they'll forget about the entire thing. Well, let me tell you guys what happened. Uh, As soon as that match ended and the Rampage graphic popped up on the screen, The crowd booed. It moaned first. Groaned, I should say, not moaned. It groaned first. And then it booed. And it was short. You know, it wasn't extended. But people weren't happy. And candidly, if you don't have Britt Baker say, I'm the boss with a wink, then I think expectations would have been lowered. They chose not to do it. They chose to bring people into the show, making them think Sasha might appear. And any criticism that they get, they deserve. I just, I'm not going to be personally the one doing it because I don't think it was blatant on their part. Again, other than Baker, I'm really surprised they allowed that to slide. Now, as far as what happens with Mercedes, she can absolutely still debut in AEW. In fact, given Cole's return, maybe they're saving her for the next pay-per-view, which could come after her first wave of New Japan and stardom obligations are completed. That would space things out, not just in terms of Cole's return, but also with Mercedes' debut. It would also be just as impactful, if not more impactful, coming on a pay-per-view, especially given it would be separate from her New Japan debut. Otherwise, she's making two debuts in a very short period of time. Now, that's not to say she's going to AEW. I'm just pointing out, because it didn't happen on Dynamite doesn't mean it's not going to happen. Now, that said, there was also a report from, I think it was Dave Meltzer, it may have been Sean Ross Sapp, I forget whom, 
uh, citing WWE sources, thinking that Mercedes was going to do a run in Japan, kind of get it out of her system, and then come back to WWE. But you'd think if that was the case, she would have at least considered re-signing and attempted to come to some agreement with Triple H to use the Sasha Banks name over there. Or maybe she's using this run right now as like a trial balloon to see what she wants to do next. If she does gain a lot of traction. There's a you know report out there, I guess it's um, legitimate numbers that came in, that New Japan sold out like a, I don't know how many people, 2,000 seat show in San Jose, California. And after she got announced for it, they sold 500 tickets. And that's great. Um, it's going to be the first time she wrestles in, you know, seven months or, or however long. That's great. Um, do I think that is some remarkable number? No, I actually am very surprised that it didn't happen faster. There's also other matches on that show that people may have bought tickets to go see based on things that developed at the end of uh, New Japan Wrestle Kingdom and the following day. So, you know, look, I don't know what's happening with Mercedes with Sasha. I still believe, and I've maintained this from the very beginning, WWE is far, far better for her and her profile than AEW is. But we'll see what happens as this progresses. And it's obviously 1000% in her court. On Rampage, we had a TNT championship match. Darby Allen defending against Mike Bennett. You may be wondering, Silver King, why did Mike Bennett get a title match? Uh, Bennett confronted Allen backstage saying he's not entitled, but wants an opportunity. As if that makes a shred of sense. We haven't seen this guy on TV since that really shitty debut. And now he's getting a title match. Darby put Bennett in a chair and hit a missile dropkick at ringside. He followed with an avalanche code red off the middle rope and a coffin drop to retain the title. The crowd was on fire for Darby and the finishing sequence with those three moves in succession, superb. Rest of the match, whatever. On Dynamite, Juice Robinson made his second appearance on AEW TV. He was interviewed backstage saying, there's ass to kick, there's names to take, there's championships to win. He challenged Darby for the TNT title on Rampage. This will be his first TV match in AEW since September. And I think it's his first since being signed full-time, though he's done some dark appearances. But again, they signed this guy and he's not even appearing on TV until right now. I'm fine with the booking. This is another one of those guys though where it's like, oh yeah, they're in AEW also, I forgot. On Battle of the Belts, there was a tag team championship match, the acclaimed against Jay Lethal and Jeff Jarrett. Anything goes stipulation. Max Caster was on one with this rap. And of course, another Vince McMahon reference. Lethal broke an ankle lock on Jarrett by dropping an elbow on the referee. That popped me huge. Billy Gunn then took out Lethal and Satnam Singh took out Caster. There were low blows and other stuff that was within the rules, like cheating-wise. Gunn shattered a guitar over Singh's head, only to eat the stroke from Jarrett. Singh then double chokeslammed both champions and took the referee out also, throwing the stripes to Sanjay Dutt, making him the new referee. Lethal caught Caster with lethal injection, and then Dutt, for some reason, slow-counted. The guy should be counting fast. You're the referee, you know, even though it probably wouldn't have counted, you're the referee in that spot. Boom, 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 one, two, three. Your guy wins the title. I mean, I didn't understand what they were doing there. Aubrey Edwards ran down to stop him. She broke his pencil. She shoved him. Bowens hit lethal with the arrival, and Caster added mic drop as Singh just stood there at ringside, staring at them, doing nothing as the acclaimed retained the titles. The fans were hot for a lot of the action, and I will agree that there were portions of this that were entertaining, but using three referees and allowing Singh to get involved all match only to just stand there in the finish was completely nonsensical. 
It's anything goes. They had the numbers advantage. They have a giant. They really should have won the titles. Again, I don't want them to win the titles, but they should have. Now, one idea is AEW security could have come down and restrained him while this happened. He could have got tossed from ringside. Anything other than the guy standing there, his big ass head right in the camera shot, doing nothing as this team, the champions, retain the titles. At the end of the day, the heels were never taking the titles. The fans went home happy. But was this overbooked? It was immensely overbooked. On Dynamite, Acclaimed appeared in a backstage promo. They announced they're getting stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Even though that's something people pay to have, it's really surprising that they would be getting it as wrestlers. Like out of all the wrestlers, for the Acclaimed to get it, I'm not a cop. I'm not trying to shit on them. I'm just, I love the Acclaimed. I'm just saying they're not really Hollywood Walk of Fame caliber stars at this point for the number two company in North America. Just very, very strange. Maybe it's some kind of angle and it's all taped and we'll find out. I have no idea. On Dynamite, the Jericho Appreciation Society came out wearing matching gold jackets and talking a lot of shit. Apparently, they showed up at a PWG show unannounced this week. Chris Jericho said the Ricky Starks experiment is over. So obviously, Starks and Action Andretti came out. Everyone talked really mediocre to weak shit. Starks called out Jake Hager, made fun of his speech impediment twice. JAS has just never hit for me, folks. But I legitimately groaned when they entered. It was the exact same reaction that I had to JBL and Baron Corbin on Raw. There is no scenario in which a Chris Jericho stable should elicit from me the same reaction as JBL and Corbin. I just cannot stand the JAS. And that's despite liking most, not all, but most of the people in the group. The crowd ate up the shit talking. I thought it was absolute shit, pun intended. This, by the way, preceded the main event. The fact that it took one minute, let alone multiple minutes away from that ladder match was idiotic. Easily the worst segment on Dynamite, mostly because the rest of the show was in that good to great range. But folks, I have no choice on this one. On Battle of the Belts, Jade Cargill fought Sky Blue. Cool, a fifth Sky Blue match in the last three weeks. All right, sarcasm aside, uh, Jade chokeslammed Sky on the ramp. The referee checked on the challenger rather than count her out. When she finally did start counting her out, it took forever. She double counted the number seven. She must have been outside the ring for two minutes and she didn't even get a 10 count. Red Velvet walked out to stare at Jade. Sky countered Jaded with a really cool code blue. The highlight though was Jade catching Sky flying. She caught her on her shoulders in a powerbomb position. Then she flipped her around on her shoulders, dropped her, caught her by the arms, and hit Jaded for the win. The finishing sequence was outstanding. Chris Jericho called it her best match. I would not say that, but the finish was the singular best move that she has done in her career. That is for sure. On Battle of the Belts, there was the All-Atlantic Championship, Orange Cassidy against Kip Sabian. The referee tossed the bunny from ringside. Butcher and Blade came out to eliminate Danhausen on the stage. Kip did Orange's gimmicks again before catching him with three knees to the face in succession. Best friend saved Orange from the heels outside. Sabian hit a corkscrew neckbreaker and a really crappy Orange punch. Orange came back with a tornado DDT, a PK, and beach break for a near fall. Then he shoved the referee out of frustration, but quickly hit two Orange punches to retain the title. I didn't like this at all. I remember Sabian being a way better wrestler than what we got here. I just thought the whole thing was really strange. 
On Dynamite, Orange and Danhausen were backstage with Paul Walter Hauser, a great actor. He won the Golden Globe, uh, I think it was Tuesday night, for Best Supporting Actor in a Drama for the series Blackbird on Apple TV. Great show. Go watch that if you have not yet. Uh, he said he would show the Golden Globe statue on Rampage. He asked them if Best Friends and Orange and Danhausen were all still friends. Best Friends seemed kind of less than enthusiastic about the whole thing, but they nodded along. Uh, Hauser's a real wrestling fan, and he was comfortable speaking here. I thought it worked. You know, it, did it need to be on TV? No. Some celebrity star power. The guy just won a Golden Globe. Put him on. It makes a lot of sense. On Rampage, House of Black got a slow, meandering promo package addressing Eddie Kingston with Malachi Black saying Kingston has changed. Julia Hart said they were there to help him, almost as if it was a recruitment deal. To my surprise, this was actually awful. Unlike House of Black stuff I usually like, this has no momentum whatsoever. On Battle of the Belts, Ortiz wondered why House of Black only mentioned Kingston and not him. So Eddie made a tag team challenge for Dynamite. And then on Dynamite, they continued arguing about whether Ortiz could trust Kingston. And the match is actually going to be on Rampage. Whole thing's a mess. Uh, This is a bunch of nothing to me. It's really convoluted. It's kind of a boring storyline. And you could almost tell that no one involved in it actually has their heart in it. It's almost just like, here, there's a bunch of people here that fans like. We have nothing to do with them, so let's just throw them in a really shitty feud. On Dynamite, Jungle Hook fought Big Bill and Lee Moriarty. Big Bill confronted Jong, the actor from Hangover and Community. He was in the crowd. Hook later tossed him in a suplex, him being Big Bill, not Ken Jong, uh, to a huge pop. Jungle Boy caught Moriarty with a snare trap and got the submission, while Hook somehow held Big Bill back, which was kind of odd and also some alliteration there. Uh, the crowd popped, right? Two favorites got a win. Match was okay. On Battle of the Belts, Powerhouse Hobbs showed off the Book of Hobbs, which he claimed was sacred to him. It's basically a diary. And that's all we got from it. It's tough to buy into any of this. And then on Rampage, Preston Vance fought a luchador jobber, Vance had a lariat, full Nelson, for like three seconds. Um, and then a discus lariat and got the win. Then he ripped off the guy's mask. It was a total waste of television time. So, you know, look, as I noted, Rampage and Battle of the Belts, they weren't perfect. There was decent stuff on there when usually there is not. So they were at least a worthy watch on Friday. But Dynamite was Dynamite. It was a fantastic show, really from start to finish. Couple down moments, couple booking decisions that I had a problem with. But overall, very, very good. And, you know, credit to AEW because they got a nice rating out of it. They got 967,000 viewers, which is one of their higher uh, total audience numbers in quite some time. Uh, 0.33 demo. That's kind of mediocre. It may be on the high side for them recently, but it's nowhere near some of the highs that they were hitting. Uh, Now, whether this stays next week, who knows? It was an incredible show. I am someone who believes that the quality of show the prior week has more of an impact on ratings the following week than what's actually on that show. Now, exceptions can be made. One exception is this show where you think, oh, WWE fans may be thinking that Sasha Banks is going to show up. Or there's this huge major ladder match in the main event and the John Moxley Hangman Page match. That's a, you know, big booking and it's something they've really heavily promoted. So certainly shows like this, the uh, SmackDown to end 2022, there are shows where um, what is booked on that show is directly responsible for the rating. But on a normal weekly show, I am largely of the belief that what happens the week before makes an impact on it. So I'm going to be very curious, not so much about this week's Dynamite rating, which I just told you, but next week's rating. Are people 
really excited coming off the high quality wrestling that we got three times on the show. Four, if you want to include the women's match. Or did they tune in for Sasha Banks? And since she wasn't there, they left disappointed. We'll find out next week. We'll also see how good or not good the show is next week. Uh, But that'll be very interesting. So let's go ahead and move to uh, NXT New Year's Evil. It was a special show. I should note as well that NXT actually did 700,000 viewers as a total audience number and a 0.15 demo, which for NXT is extremely good. And the show last week, we praised. That's not gonna be what we do this week. Let's go ahead and talk about New Year's Evil. Chase, you opened the spring semester with homework. That was to watch New Year's Evil. Marcus made an ass of himself. He got kicked out of the fucking class. Thea Hale was nervous about her big match, but got a pep talk from Andre Chase and then started cursing herself. These segments with Chase, you they're gold. Gold, Jerry, gold. Uh, cute open to set the stage for the show. Unfortunately, it was one of the better things on New Year's Evil. Uh, Dijak fought Tony D'Angelo for the number one contendership for the North American Championship. I should note, I'm basically gonna break this down in order of what happened on the show. You'll understand why. Uh, Wesley joined commentary. Dijak threw D'Angelo on stacks into the barricade, which D'Angelo bounced off and hit a spear at ringside. Dijak lifted D'Angelo for high justice, a sit-down choke slam for the near fall. And I saw that move and I'm like, this is the guy's finisher. It's a million times better than feast your eyes. Use high justice. Sit down, chokeslam, bomb. You're done. Get rid of feast your eyes. Stax somehow got handcuffed to the middle rope. He jumped into the ring to step in front of D'Angelo as Dijak was about to attack. But Tony pushed him aside, said something about family, and ate a huge boot in the face to take the L. This was easily Dijak's best showing since returning to NXT. He and D'Angelo were a really solid combination. And like I said, high justice, it's better than anything else he has as a finisher or signature. The finish also brought some injury, possible face turn for the mobsters. That would obviously be a unique booking. Solid opening for New Year's Evil. We started strong. Uh, the Creed brothers had a scheduled match against Indusher, which has been built up for like two months now. Sangha walked out by himself and he informed the Creeds Veer was not there, but he would honor the match two on one. Out of nowhere, Jinder Mahal attacked from behind. They destroyed the Creeds, chokeslam Brutus into the steel steps and hit the Colossus on Julius inside. Mahal then said, Veer and Sangha fight for respect, but I don't. And then he dropped the mic. Backstage, Valentina Feroyce lambasted Sangha, but he said it's all about him and his brothers now. So look, obviously I was disappointed not to get what I wanted to see. Big meaty man slapping me. <laughs> But this was so unexpected that it was kind of hard to argue with the booking. Mahal is now the second former WWE champion working in NXT, which is astounding when you think about it. He had a fully shaved head. He felt like a major presence on the brand. And the pop that he got was legitimately massive from the crowd. It really must have felt good for Jinder to hear that. Ivy Nile later tried to calm Julius down outside the training room. He was on one though, just going off that he couldn't calm down and he needed to take out Jinder from the attack or else. Julius Creed then fought Jinder. The match happened later in the show. Julius was obviously hot at the bell. Jinder worked him over for the majority of the match. Julius persevered through it all, even with his mouth getting busted open hard way. He had his rotating slam and climbed the top rope only for Sangha to distract. That led to Mahal avoiding a shooting star press, booting him in the jaw and hitting the Colossus to get the win. It was understandable. You're bringing Jinder back. Brutus is injured, two-on-one advantage. You're having him win. It's just, we didn't get the match that we were expecting to see because sometimes 
You just want a lot of beef out there. There's a lot of beef out here. You don't want any water. You don't want any bread. All you want is meat. He don't want no water. He don't want no bread. All he wants is meat. And Jinder's no small dude, but we didn't get what we wanted. That was disappointing. So we had a tag team gauntlet match scheduled. This was to make Pretty Deadly number one contenders for New Day's titles if they won. The first match was New Day against the Rockers. So New Day backstage rushed PD to the ring so they didn't miss this match. And the first opponent was a fake version of the Rockers that they beat in 30 seconds with spilt milk. New Day came out calling BS and then they brought out the next team. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, well, who booked this? Pretty Deadly didn't book their own gauntlet match. So either Shawn Michaels decided to give them a freebie or New Day did. Like I, I, the whole thing was very confusing to me. So the next match was PD against Idris Anofe and Malik Blade. The faces combined for a frog splash immediately after a superplex for a great near fall to start. They actually kind of dominated their portion of the match, though Pretty Deadly reversed an inside cradle and got the win. Briggs and Jensen were supposed to be next, but they were laid out backstage. And out of nowhere, Gallus returned to NXT, suddenly replacing them in the match off suspension. Gallus straight cleaned house and hit their kick power slam to get the win. Then they stared down New Day. This was all over the place. Like the whole Rockers thing didn't make a shred of sense because again, it's not like they picked their own opponents. The Gallus return was handled well in terms of the surprise aspect, but it also kind of flattened PD's run when they've been over like Rover. Now, part of this may be related to Pretty Deadly doing a run of WWE live events over the weekend. And supposedly they got rave reviews. So perhaps this had to be a scenario where plans changed, a call-up is imminent, and they had to do something different. But it was really messy, and again, not what we expected from the show. Gallus, though, they're awesome, and they have a huge presence that is going to be added now to the NXT tag team division. So that's clearly a positive. Later backstage, Fallon Henley, Keanu James, they were nursing Briggs and Jensen, respectively, with Henley and Briggs being wary of the other two. Quick little continuation of their storyline. Nothing crazy here. Now, all those New Year's vignettes that we've seen on NXT over the last couple of weeks, they led to the return of a refreshed Tiffany Stratton with new music, new something else, and a gimmick more focused on being the center of attention photographed like an influencer rather than being the spoiled daddy's girl character. She completely lost her place early in the promo. She did catch up. She finished it okay. I thought it would be a more impactful return, but at least she's back and no longer saddled with the awful gimmick that she had before. Carmelo Hayes was drinking coffee and writing his own journal in Apollo Crews' diner. Trick Williams ended up sitting next to him in a luchador mask, wondering how Axiom saw anything out of his mask. Melo and Trick then toasted with coffee about Melo's goal to win the NXT title. Crews later vented to Axiom backstage with the idea that they will be a tag team against Melo and Trick. And that was made relatively obvious last week. So all of this was fine, nothing special. I love Carmelo Hayes. I love Trick Williams, but it's okay if we go one show without them being on it. If you don't have the space, you don't have the time, kind of just move forward. So then we got to the NXT Championship match, Braun Breaker defending against Grayson Waller. Braun got put in the Steiner recliner momentarily, but then immediately lifted and threw Waller. He came back with a flying bulldog, but Waller did his rolling move into the ring, hitting Breaker with a lifted knee to the face as a counter to an attempted spear. Waller then climbed the ropes to presumably hit his elbow when the middle rope straight broke and he fell outside, hitting his head on the ring apron. He tried to get back in at eight. He grabbed the same rope, 
it was still loose, so he fell backwards, and Breaker won via countout. The only way to describe this is overbooked mess. The match was like decent for what we got the short period of time, but the lone major title match on a show being a mid-show main event made it clear that some shenanigans were at foot and it wasn't going to be a clean finish. Waller was looking good against Breaker, decent enough, but the idea of booking the finish this way, plus having a heel be on the receiving end of the screw job, it was mind-numbing. It was maybe the worst finish to an NXT title match in brand history and one of the worst match bookings in a long time. This will be part of the 2023 Getting Over Awards. Someone remind me when it comes to doing the categories at the end of the year. Zero point zero. Zero point zero, Mr. Blutarski. And then at the end of NXT, right before the show went off the air, Shawn Michaels called Breaker and Waller into a meeting room. He promised they would have a rematch with a decisive winner coming at NXT Vengeance Day inside a steel cage. This booking was obvious coming out of the match finish. It didn't make it any better. It could have been as simple as a double countout where they just fought up the stage, a no contest, double disqualification. You get the same result. And instead, we get something unnecessarily messy. Hank Walker fought Charlie Dempsey. Walker pulled out a shoulder breaker early. Dempsey worked his leg, but got caught in an armbar as Gulak coached up Walker. Dempsey flipped out of it with an incredible escape and got Walker in a neck crank, pinned with his leg for the submission victory. Gulak was angry after the bell. He nodded in Dempsey's direction. Walker was surprisingly decent and Dempsey was awesome showing off his technical wrestling prowess. So we got the battle royal for the number one contendership uh, of Roxanne Perez's NXT women's title. A toxic attraction backstage changed their colors to black and yellow. They promised to take out their aggression on the other women and stand together at the end if it came to it. Electra Lopez later told Feroz to watch out for herself in the match. Roxanne Perez later discussed a number of women who could possibly win without anything significant really said. Alba Fire confronted Sol Ruka backstage, apologizing for their match a couple weeks ago and asking if she still wanted it. Ruka was focused on the Battle Royal, so Fire strangely got in her face with Ruka accepting before Fire apologized. She wasn't really sure what came over her, so obviously this is playing into like the whole... Isla Dawn, her black magic or whatever, affected Albafire coming out of their feud. So this was the main event of the show. Cora Jade was eliminated. Literally seconds after the bell, Amari Miller chopped Lash Legend in the chest so hard it literally got the crowd yelling, oh, and rising to its feet, which it takes a lot to do with that on a single chop. Ruka saved herself from elimination by walking around the ring on a handstand and then lifting herself up via her feet on the, under the bottom rope into the ring like doing a sit-up. Cora later ran back in for retribution, only to miss and get flung over the ropes again. Wendy Chu landed on her body pillow outside, but Electra Lopez pulled it out from underneath her. Zoe Stark then eliminated Nikita Lyons, only to get thrown out by Ruka with ease. That left Toxic, Ruka, Fire, and Leah Valkyria as the final five. Fire eliminated Ruka. Valkyria then eliminated Fire, but got distracted on the ring apron by Cora, who she eliminated right at the beginning of the match. They brawled outside with Toxic standing as the final two. They celebrated, but obviously that's not how a battle royal works. It's a single winner. The fans chanted for JC Jane over Gigi Dolan, which shocked me. JC suggested that she would just eliminate herself. She started climbing over the rope. Gigi yelled at her to stop. So JC turned around, and just booted her in the chest. They battled on either side of a ring post and punched each other at the same time. 
falling for a simultaneous elimination. Referees huddled after the bell for an instant replay. And when they showed it on the broadcast, I gotta say, they looked like they touched down simultaneously. So it was really executed well. They brought the women back in the ring. They declared dual winners. Uh, President came out and held up the title to end the show. So look, just like the finish to the men's match, this was massively overbooked. It felt like NXT just did whatever it could to put on a TV special without anything special actually happening. I didn't hate the finish in a vacuum if we didn't get the booking that we did get for the NXT men's title match earlier, because at least this creates an interesting triple threat scenario. But to do it on the same show and not have anything that was booked for New Year's Evil finish decisively like we expected, that's a disappointment. There's no other way to put it. That's not to say the show was all bad. There were a number of entertaining elements. I mentioned many of them but it did not live up to the lofty expectations that we have for special events like these. And most of it underachieved, if not completely disappointed. Lastly, I did forget this. Uh, Tyler Bate announced in a video package he returns next week to settle some issues and face some new challenges. He also said he's staying around, which is obviously great news. We also got more NXT Anonymous stuff like we did last week. There's still not, not much to that to break down. And finally, There was a vignette from Stevie Turner from NXT UK. She's basically doing a streamer gimmick. So she will be joining NXT in the United States shortly. And that was NXT this week. I already gave you my full breakdown of the entire show. Just really disappointing. When you get into a show and it's New Year's Evil and you know their special shows usually hit and then you're watching and it's just, that wasn't great. That kind of sucked. That was an embarrassment. What the hell is going on here? Like when that's your trajectory as the show progresses, It's just extremely frustrating, especially when we know that NXT can do a lot better. I mean, Shawn Michaels was our second place finisher for 2022 Meaty for uh, Booker of the Year. Shawn Michaels, NXT, not Tony Khan, Shawn Michaels. And then we get this show coming out of giving him the second place finish for that award. Massively disappointing. Obviously a huge Shawn fan. I just expected better from NXT. So yeah, Uh, AEW, I mean, we we never do like head-to-head AEW versus NXT, which one was better. But if we did, AEW mopped the floor with them in terms of TV quality over the last week. And folks, that is how we are going to wrap up this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. I appreciate all of you joining me for the duration as we talked AEW and NXT. Given this is the 394th episode, folks, we are quickly coming up on episode 400. Absolutely wild. We're going to hit 400 episodes before we hit our full three-year anniversary. That is just crazy, but we love bringing you this show and we hope you love listening to it. If you do, here's an idea. Perhaps you can remember that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about Defy. So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave the five-star rating on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. And if you do, we will read it live here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, and much more. Follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. We are wrapping up a crazy three weeks here for Getting Over in the world of professional wrestling. We did not think 2023 would begin as crazy as 2022 seemed to be across the entire 12 months, but it has started to be crazy. Perhaps it's even going to get crazier. We will be with you the entire way. So let's wrap things up. Time for me to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.